I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, guys, we're back. Welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. This is your host, Clay Bowers, and I'm joined by my other host, Luke Oswald. And uh, we're here with Langdon Cook. Langdon is this guy that I heard of a couple of years ago when I was perusing my local bookstore and I found this book called The Mushroom Hunters. And I was immediately like, this is awesome. I got to read it. Um, and a couple of years goes by. I find him on social media and I invited him to come out of the podcast. Langdon, please explain to the audience who you are and how you got into mushroom hunting. Of course. Uh, first of all, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Um, so I've been into mushroom hunting for 30 plus years. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a writer now, but the mushroom hunting actually predates the writing, uh, in a way, my, my material kind of found me, but, uh, it took a while. Uh, I started writing about wild foods maybe 15 years ago. And, uh, since then I've written three books. I consider it my wild food trilogy on well, there's the mushroom hunters that we're going to talk about and a, another book on Pacific salmon called Upstream. And my first book is just a collection of personal essays about wild foods and foraging called Fat of the Land. Um, in addition to writing, I teach classes and, um, you know, do other sort of related things like that. Yeah. How did you get into mushroom hunting? Was it your parents or was it just like your own interest? You know, I've been a nature geek since I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in New England. Uh, mm -hmm. We had, you know, three and a half acres out back and woods that for the first seven years of my life, I was an only child and, until my sister came along. And uh, so I had to occupy myself. I was just into turning over rocks and looking for bugs and putting them in terrariums and, and that kind of stuff and running around the woods. Um, and that just stayed with me. Um, I've been a bird watcher since I was young. Um, when I got to the West Coast, I kind of fell in, this is my early 20s, fell in with a crew that just enjoyed being outdoors, 
but also enjoyed finding wild foods um, as sort of part of the experience, which is something I hadn't done before. So, you know, if we went salmon fishing, well, maybe there was a beach with some oysters on it, or we might dig some clams. You know, if we went backpacking, oh, look, there's some morels over there. Let's, you know, put that in the camp pot, that sort of thing. And uh, over time, more and more wild foods just kind of landed on my plate. Uh, and uh, I realized I, I just had sort of a whole repertoire of, uh, of, of foods that I'd like to go, you know, chase in the woods um, or the shore, as it, mm -hmm. as it may be. Um, and, uh, and then at a certain point, they became my subject matter. I realized what incredible characters they are in their own right. I mean, they're delicious and they have great life histories and they're fun to find, um, but they're charismatic and uh, they're individuals in a way. And, and, uh, and so they became kind of like my characters and just started writing um, first these essays and then doing sort of longer journalistic uh, pieces on, on wild foods and the people you know, who pursue them, because, of course, they're just as interesting as the foods. And so it's kind of that intersection of food, nature and uh, the outdoors where I've kind of planted my flag. That's awesome. Um, so I've noticed something that's kind of interesting and maybe you could illuminate me on this. Um, wh why is it called mushroom hunting? I, I've I've always been kind of like curious about that when when you go out to like forage for plants like that's kind of my area of expertise would be more plants and um, I do some mushroom hunting but nobody says I'm going to go out plant hunting but people do say mushroom hunting and you're the writer why is that you think you know it might be similar to why do we call it fishing rather than catching because no. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You could go out and hunt for mushrooms, but that doesn't mean you're coming home with a full basket, does it? I think I think we've all experienced getting skunked out there in yeah. the woods. And uh, and I don't know, maybe the hunting aspect of it, just calling it hunting kind of gives it this added kind of romance. I'm not really sure, but um, but we're out on the hunt and, yeah. you know, it's activating all these kind of primitive sort of you know, buttons that we have inside us that, you know, we've carried within us, you know, since antiquity. I mean, as someone pointed out to me, we're, we're descendants of, of successful foragers from the mm -hmm. deep past. And, and we have this kind of, you know, this need to fulfill, you know, the sort of hunting experience within us. I mean, everybody, whether you live in a city or out in the country, um, whether you're, you know, into that sort of thing or not, it's kind of there, uh, just waiting to be discovered. When I'm teaching my classes, it's it's just amazing to see people who have really no foraging experience, who have hardly been in the woods, and you get them out there, and when they find their first mushroom or wild plant or berry, they just go nuts. You know, mm -hmm. there is just something. There's of course the treasure hunt. Um, there's that aspect. Um, which is another part of kind of mushroom hunting, you know, the treasure hunt. Um, but uh, it's just, it's, it's something we all carry within us. And, uh, and it's a matter of just getting in touch with it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So when you say teach your classes, you're talking about like botany classes or foraging classes or um, what, what type of classes? So I actually teach wild food foraging classes um, out here. I live in Seattle. Um, and uh, mostly in spring and fall. Uh, those are sort of my two big seasons for doing it. I take a break in the summer. Uh, but in the spring, you know, that's a great time for wild greens. Uh, and then, of course, in fall, mushrooms. 
Um, but of course, we have all sorts of different wild foods here in the Pacific Northwest, just the way you have all sorts of different foods where you are. Um, they have a seasonality to them. And even if something isn't fruiting, um, you know, you can point out, you know, what it looks like at that stage in its life cycle to folks just so they can see it. I mean, I always encourage people to find, you know, a nice hike nearby from where they live and just go do it like once a month, you know, every month throughout the year and just see how all these different species are kind of changing over the course of their life cycle. And then you can recognize them at any time and go back when it's appropriate to harvest. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, I teach, teach wild food classes. I, I do shellfish classes on the coast, um, which are a heck of a lot of fun. I mean, we, we pick clams or dig clams and pick oysters. Uh, sometimes if it's really low tides, we'll, we'll dig gooey ducks. And then we cook everything up on camp stoves, just overlooking Puget Sound. It's, it's a blast. That sounds awesome. Now, does everybody need a license for that? So I actually, um, my partner in the shellfish classes is a third generation uh, oyster grower hmm. uh, with a home right on the South Sound. And, wow. um, and so we're actually on his property. So technically, they don't need licenses. Okay. But you know, for, for if you're a Washington resident, you can get a shellfish license for something like 10 or 12 bucks for the year, you know, and so just... Yeah, exactly. And, and and you can gather shellfish and seaweed with that license. So basically your first day out, you've paid for it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And if you get a gooey duck that weighs a few pounds, well, I don't know if you've ever seen those in the market, but around <laughs> here, I mean, they, they go, you know, for a hefty sum. I've never seen one in the market, but I've seen them, seen a lot of them on social media these days. Um so how are you even cooking the gooey duck? That's one thing that I've always kind of been curious about. I see it made in a lot of Asian dishes, but is there like an American spin on that? Is there like a, a, a coastal spin? What, what are you guys doing that's different than, than the traditional Asian dishes with it? Right. So there are definitely Asian, especially Japanese dishes, and, and we do some of those. And then I do my own spins on it. But let's let's back up a second and just explain to the audience what a gooey duck is. It is it is the largest burrowing clam in the world. Now, you might when you hear burrowing clam, you might think, oh, it can dig, dig itself to safety when you're when you're trying to catch it. No, once it, it burrows down um, to its layer when it's when it's, you know, just when it's young, when it's a baby. Uh, and then that's it. It's three feet basically below the the surface, um, you know, for the rest of its life, which could be 200 years. And they, they can be quite old. Wow. Yes. And uh, and it stays there. Um, so the key to digging a gooey duck is to to find where it lives uh, mm -hmm. and then and then and then dig it up. And of course, you're racing the tide. You can only dig these on the lowest tides of the year, um, which is usually around the summer solstice. So May. June, early July are the times um, when most of us are digging gooey ducks out here in Puget Sound. And uh, and they can be huge. I mean, I've heard of double digit poundage gooey ducks, you know, 11, 12 pounds. I've never seen one that big. I think I've seen one as big as seven pounds. Um, more typical would be sort of, you know, two to three pounds. Um, but still, that's a lot of meat. And yeah. uh, it is incredibly delicious. I tell people, if you like clams, you're going to like gooey duck because it's a clammy clam. Lots of flavor, also lots of texture. It's a very al dente clam. Uh, so in terms of preparing it, 
Um, typically, what we'll do is once we get the gooey duck out of the ground, which is just a fiasco, you know, <laughs> in itself. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's so much fun to watch my students in their fishing waders, like on their bellies, reaching mm-hmm. their arms, like you know, shoulder deep. Often, I mean, I have I have seen you know students go completely underwater to try and get a gooey duck. You know, I mean, <laughs> literally head under, practically snorkeling, you know, trying to get that thing out of the ground as, as the tide comes in. They know, you know, that, that the clock is ticking. Like, they, they have to take drastic measures to get that thing because they're sort of fastened into the ground, sort of suctioned into their layers, and you have to break that suction. You have to really get okay. kind of un, under the shell. Um, in the Nisqually tribe, tribal language, gooey duck basically means dig deep. And uh, they are way down there. And, uh, and so it, it's really fun just getting them out of the ground. And then, um, and then in terms of preparing them, we'll just stick them in a vat of boiling water for, you know, eight to 10 seconds. And uh, at that point, you can kind of clean them. So take them out of the shell. Um, you have to sort of remove this sort of outer layer on the siphon. Um, and, then, and then you remove what's known, you know, colloquially as the gut ball. And that's, mm-hmm. you know... Other people will refer to that with other species of, of shellfish as the dark parts. It's like, you know, the lungs and stomach and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure it makes great crab bait, but we don't we don't eat that. Um, and so you're left with the body meat and the neck meat. Um, and with the neck meat, I will typically do that in the Japanese style just as sashimi. Um, so I am not. I'm, it got briefly boiled and that's it. Um, I'm not cooking it at all. With the body meat, I love to dice it up and throw it in the wok and make a stir fry. Uh, it kind of plumps up as soon as it hits the hot wok, and uh, it's absolutely delicious. And actually, in spring, my, my favorite thing to do is combine that with some morels or some spring porcini mushrooms and make kind of what I call a, a Sichuan surf and turf, which is just, you know, mushrooms from the woods, gooey duck from the shore, mix it all together with some hot peppers and and uh you know green onions and uh it's it's absolutely delicious nice that sounds amazing (laughs) yes it's kind of a fun you know take on like kung pao you know throw some peanuts in there at the end and uh yeah good good stuff so would you say out of all the the shellfish and clams and everything is gooey duck your favorite then (sighs) it's hard to pick um you know, we have a type of oyster out here on the West Coast called the Olympia oyster, which is our native oyster, actually. And it's kind of a small oyster with a huge flavor. And they were almost eradicated just from overfishing um, in the 1900s. Uh, but they're starting to make a comeback. And my friend John Adams, who I teach these classes with, who owns the property um, where this third generation shellfish farm is, he has one of the largest native wild populations of um, Olympia oysters anywhere in the state. Uh, And that's so that's a a real treat. I just love having those on the half shell with a very simple mignonette. Um, But, uh, you know, we have lots of other good things, um, all sorts of good shellfish, Dungeness crabs and you know, manila clams and, you know, I mean, the list goes on. I love going squid jigging off the town oh. pier, which is <laughs> which is another crazy scene. I mean, we do that right in downtown Seattle, you know, in That's the middle amazing. of the night. 
you know, bring your little hip flask of uh, whiskey because it could be cold out. It's usually around this time of year when uh, when the squid are running. And it's we use something called a squid jig, which is a kind of glow in the dark jig, sort of cigar shaped that has hooks that radiate outward. So kind of in the opposite way that like maybe a fish hook would. Right. And what happens is, is the squid gets kind of tangled up in it. And I think it's actually trying to mate with the lure, <laughs> it's not trying to eat it. So it's definitely a case of interruptus there. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. The squid's trying to get it done, and there you are, yanking him out of the water, yeah. uh, which is why he usually sprays you with his ink when he comes up. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, if I, I try to harvest that ink as well, actually, because that is super delicious. Uh, oh, it is? Oh, the squid ink? Oh, yeah. Have you ever had, like, squid ink risotto or pasta or anything like that? Yeah. Never in my oh, life. Yes. Italian delicacy. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, so squidding is a lot of fun. That's something we do here, right, you know, right within city limits. Um, and, of course, I do a lot of salmon fishing off the beach right in Seattle. Um, we had a big year this year because it was a pink run. And that's a species of salmon. It's the smallest uh, Pacific salmon. Uh, and uh, they have a two-year life cycle, um, which means um, that they always come back every other year. Uh, and for us down here in Washington, it's in odd-numbered years. And mm -hmm. so you know if it's an odd-numbered year that it's going to be a pink year. And this year was a good one. I think they got several million that came back to Puget Sound. And from like late July all the way through September, I mean, it was just gangbusters. I, I usually fly fish for them right off the beaches uh, in Seattle. And then once they're in the rivers, I'll get my little pontoon boat out and just kind of, well, I, I actually, I call it my super fun salmon because um, they'll be in the sort of lower stretches of, uh, well, there's one particular river that is Seattle's kind of working river, the Duwamish. And it's the site of Boeing, you know, and all sorts of other heavy industry. And it is, in fact, a super fun site. Oh, but, wow. you know, those those salmon are spending uh, as long as it takes for the tide to change in that mm. water. So yeah. it's not like you're hauling in, you know, fish that glow in the dark or anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, they do have to swim through it to get to cleaner spawning grounds upstream. And uh, and we're there waiting in our pontoon boats and other other various tubs to to catch them and uh, they're good biters so they're they're really fun on a fly rod you know like a lightweight you know six weight rod something like that for the pink uh, what are you using for uh the larger species of salmon so the other species that i focus on a lot around seattle is silver salmon uh also known as coho and that's really our bread and butter salmon for puget sound um and uh they're often running pretty close to the beaches when they're heading towards their spawning grounds. And in fact, there's even resident salmon in Puget Sound that never, you know, go out all the way to the sort of North Pacific. Um, they're a little bit smaller. By the time they're mature, they're sort of in the five to six pound range, whereas, you know, the fish out in the North Pacific might come in at anywhere from sort of eight to 12 pounds, something like that. Um, but those, you know, silvers are a lot of fun on a fly rod. And uh, and they are at, they're just so delicious. Both pinks and silvers I like to smoke up in my uh, in my smoker. But if I get a good you know fresh silver off the beach, 
uh, usually that's going to go on the barbecue or something like that. But, nice. uh, but if I have a, if I have a bunch of them, then, uh, the surplus gets smoked up. Um, <laughs> and then of course, you know, there's people out fishing, uh, for Chinook, of course. Um, that's not something, uh, you know, you need friends with boats for that. And, uh, luckily I do have friends with boats, so I, I get to go on some Chinook trips. Uh, but that's a totally different style of fishing. Most people are using downriggers, fishing yeah. pretty deep with pretty heavy rods. And I just, I love getting out my lightweight fly rod and going after these fish. So yeah. that's are, kind of what I focus on. Are you using a six weight rod even when you're catching the larger silver salmon? For the silvers in Puget Sound, I use a six weight. Oh, wow. When I, I make an, yeah, I make an annual trip up to Alaska though. And for that, I'm definitely bringing a couple of eight weights. Yeah. And mm. uh, I've definitely broken rods before. So, you know, you can get into some really nice fish up there. So are you using, what type of uh, fly tackle are you using then? Are you using like the, the row beads or what are you using for uh, for bait or flies? Well, so so if I'm fishing the beaches, I tie my flies and most of them are sort of based on clouser type patterns, okay. salt, saltwater patterns. Yep. Uh, I also do some, some shrimp patterns and things like that. Mostly pink and chartreuse. Those seem to be the kind of the big colors for silvers around okay. Puget Sound. Um, and then when I'm up in Alaska, you know, I tie up these, just these big, heavy buddy leeches and Dalai Lamas <laughs> and things like that. Some of them are not very fun to throw. Yeah. Um, What's funny but, is we uh, use, uh, catch a lot of smallmouth on the river and, and okay. use fly rods. And normally it's a six or an eight weight rod. A lot of times eight weight just because they fight mm-hmm. so much. And uh, I've heard that. Yeah. And uh, we use clousers and murdiches the most, and it seems white. They just, in the summertime, like a midsummer, the white, they just attack them on the river. It's crazy how much fight they've got it's, in them. And so you guys are using saltwater flies as well. That's funny. I, you, yeah, I use a weighted because it's got the weighted eyes on it that keep the hook, uh, you know, under the surface. But then you use like a floating line. Yeah. Yeah, you know, us fly anglers, especially those of us who tie flies, we like to think that, you know, oh, this is the fly. This is the special pattern that's going to get them. But you know what? All these things are pretty fishy looking to to (laughs) fish in the water. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Um, So Langdon, I I grew up in, um, uh, or I was born in Chicago, but then my mom was in the Navy and we ended up spending four years of my life out in um, Oak Harbor, Washington. Because uh, so I, I lived right on um, Whidbey Island out there, and um, it sounds like like a paradise you're describing there. And uh, all I ever remember from that time was we went salmon fishing every year um, when I was a kid. But I was like ten through fourteen, so um, it was pretty cool. But I think I would have been far more engaged had we had I known that there was all these things that I could dig and all that stuff. So have you ever gone over to Whidbey Island? Yeah, let me tell you about Whidbey, because the fact that you lived there when you were a kid, um, you're going to be like, oh, man, I wish I'd known about that. (laughs) So Whidbey is a a great place to hunt for chanterelles and lobster mushrooms. Those are two. Yes, uh, those are two species that really like Whidbey Island. And then, of course, there's all the shellfish. Mm -hmm. Um, So and Whidbey is also known for its mussels. and there is mussel farming that goes on in Whidbey. Um, so maybe that's why it's known for mussels. But I've, I I think there's quite a few escapees as well from the farming operations. So there are lots of places around Whidbey where you can just go and forage for mussels. 
Um, but you can dig clams. Um, you know, there's berry picking. Whitby is a is a great place to be. I can remember actually camping out um, near Deception Pass, right mm-hmm. at the top there, and uh, right in the campground. I think this was like a Labor Day weekend, uh, and I harvested a whole bunch of salal berries, mm-hmm. um, as well as Oregon grape. And we were camped just in the designated campground, and I was going to the to the bathroom, and there was a cauliflower mushroom right outside the men's room, oh. <laughs> just sitting there in like a pretty busy campground on Labor Day. You know, I mean, the place was packed, and there was this huge cauliflower. You, do you know what a cauliflower mushroom yeah. looks like? The sparasis that you're talking Spar- about. That, yeah, exactly. It looks like a big bowl of egg noodles mm-hmm. or something that might have washed up at high tide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they are so good. They are one of my favorite wild mushrooms. Now, the fact that this one was sort of, you know, hanging out by a Douglas fir that was within 10 feet of the men's room, like, okay, that wasn't so great. But, you know, <laughs> Did you pick it anyway? I, <laughs> you know, I, I actually left it there. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, I'm sure it was fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, around where we live, we tend to find them at the base of big Douglas firs or um out at the coast on sitka spruce um but uh but yeah they have different hosts depending on on where you are and and which species it is but they are when you saute them up they are so nutty and delicious and they have this sort of al dente quality quality to the texture Mm -hmm. that i find you can't overcook them uh so i like to put cauliflower mushrooms in pot roasts because i really think it's sort of a two-way street you know, the mushroom will impart all its great kind of mushroomy flavor to the pot roast. But at the same time, it will absorb all the ingredients that you're putting in, whether it's the kind of meat, the red wine, the carrots and celery and onions and all the good flavors there. It sort of soaks all that up, but also, you know, kind of distributes, spreads out all of its beautiful fungaliness too. Mm. Um, and then... You know, you could have it in the pot roast for a couple hours and it will still have that kind of firm texture, um, wow. which I think is kind of unusual for right. mushrooms um, in general. Uh, so they're one of my favorites. I don't find a ton of them. You know, I just sort of find a few. I'm sure if I really targeted them, I ha- I know of enough spots where I could probably rack it up a little bit and get a bunch. but. Um, but, you know, generally I just find a couple every season and, uh, and I like to just sort of, they're one mushroom I don't really put up, you know, I just enjoy them when I have them and then that's it for the rest of the year, you know, whereas chanterelles, I put up enough for the whole year, porcini, I put up enough for the whole year, black trumpets, you know, I dry a ton of those and they're always, you know, ready to be rehydrated. But with uh, with sparasis, the cauliflower mushroom, it's just kind of a treat that I have in season. Um, and I kind of like it that way, you know. Yeah. So Langdon, um, it's funny that you find a couple every season, you say. Um, out here, at least in my group of friends in the mushrooming community here in Michigan, uh, Luke lives in Illinois, but I live in Michigan. Um, I sometimes that's one of those mushrooms that people find once in a lifetime. For, really? For, yeah, so like I, I only know one forager has ever found one. I've actually so it's pretty across, special. Came across <laughs> them and left them. Yeah, because I didn't. Yeah. I I thought 
like you know that it wasn't such a sought after mushroom or it wasn't that worth worth picking so i left them i don't know if that's true anymore. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah i found a couple <laughs> so can you give us some tips then langdon um where uh what kind of trees so you said douglas fir out there what about east coast what about like somewhere around us what kind of tree you know so my knowledge is as we head east is is uh it starts to kind of dwindle because you know all of these mushrooms that we're looking for they're connected to trees right and that's what i always tell my students i say this might sound unintuitive but if you want to find mushrooms you have to learn your trees mm-hmm. and it's actually where i live in the pacific northwest that's not that difficult you know mm-hmm. of course we have you know just huge tracts of conifers but usually it's just a few species you know, you might be in a, a forest with Douglas fir, western hemlock, and red cedar. And then maybe there's a smattering of, you know, big leaf maples and red alder. You know, I mean, we're talking about a diversity that you might count on two hands, right? <laughs> now, now step into the woods, say, in Great Smoky National Park, right? Oh, yeah. uh, like in Tennessee, where you have the highest plant biodiversity in North America. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just a bewildering to me, at least being from the Northwest, like a bewildering collection of hardwoods that I can't I look at the bark and I'm just not familiar with these trees, you know, and it's like, how how am I going to learn this? And I really want to. <laughs> yeah. um, in fact, I've actually they have a wildflower festival there at the National Park that I've been meaning to go to for years because, you know, we get really excited when our single species of trillium blooms out here in the pacific northwest i mm. think in, in in smoky national park i think they have something like 32 different species of trillia <laughs> yeah. no. so it's, it's just like yeah and i mean where i live like the trillium means so much to foragers too it's like okay when the petals are white that means it's time to look for morels when they start <laughs> to turn when they start to turn purple you know it's time to to look for spring porcini like we invest all this you know into our single species of trillium you know <laughs> whereas in tennessee they've got you know a few dozen so um but anyway like i wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what tree to look under for sparasis where you live i was actually just in the northwoods for the very first time this fall um i went and spoke to the um to the minnesota mycological society um, which was super fun. Um, met some fantastic people and got to hunt in kind of northern Wisconsin, uh, mm. which was amazing. By the way, I, I can't believe I'd never been there before. I feel <laughs> you like know where? What's that? I was where? near Kate. I was near Cable. Oh, do you know where? Cool. Do you know where yeah. that is? Yeah, yeah. I know exactly where that is. Isn't that where yeah. uh, and, Tim and uh, and uh, who? Uh, Alan Burgo, aren't they around there? So uh, Alan Burgo uh, came to my talk, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. So which was, I guess, in the that was in the Twin Cities. Um, so he must live nearby mm-hmm. there. Yep. Um, he lives in St. Paul. He lives in St. Paul. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he he came to my talk, which which I think was in St. Paul. Um, and uh, but I mean, what amazing hunting grounds you've got around there! And I, I'd always heard that it was good. But, you know, maybe it's a, a little bit off the radar. There's so many foragers out here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's just, it's such a thing, especially these days. Um, yeah. But maybe, 
you know, in the Northwoods, maybe you just have sort of the population isn't as dense. Um, there's just so much habitat, so much territory that there just isn't nearly as much competition, maybe. Uh, I mean, I'm just throwing, you know, throwing out possibilities here. But mm -hmm. like we went to this one area where it was just on a trailhead, you know, I mean, we parked the car, we walked across the street <laughs> and I think in a, just a little opening in the woods, just across the street from the trailhead, we found king bleats, black trumpets, chanterelles, and various species of lactarius, milk caps, all just kind of right there within view of the parking lot. You know, <laughs> it's just like, it was incredible. And then once we walked into the woods, you know, we were a little bit off trail, but there was a trail nearby. Um, mm -hmm. Once we walked into the woods, I think we ended up finding maybe 15 different genera of edible mushroom, like in a space, you know, in an area, I think we just hiked around a few acres, basically, <laughs> you know, it was incredible. Um, yeah. So that's definitely on my list of places to go back to. Um, and I've I already mentioned, you know, sort of the Southern Appalachians are, are amazing just for their, their plant diversity. And of course, you know, with all these different trees, that you have as you move further east, especially the hardwoods, well, you get, you know, mushrooms associated with those trees. So like we get really excited about finding, you know, our two species of, you know, in the sort of King Belit complex, uh, Belitus edulis and Belitus rexbaris, which is the spring King Belit. But, you know, you go, for instance, when I was in Wisconsin, they were talking about six different species in mm -hmm. that sort of complex of of you know species that are very similar to Boletus agilis uh, yeah. that all all kind of taste like porcini you know you can sort of tell them apart uh, but they all look very similar um, but they they all have that wonderful nutty flavor uh, and that sort of stately stature and they're just so much fun to find and they've got six species there you know and then you go further east and the number just climbs you know mm -hmm. as you get into more different species of hardwoods uh, that these mushrooms are associated with. I think, I think what makes the Northwest really good hunting, it's not our diversity, but the fact that we have these huge tracts of forest with a few species that really produce mushrooms. So for mm -hmm. instance, the Douglas fir is a magic tree. I mean, not only is it our most iconic tree in the Pacific Northwest, you know, it's the timber tree, right? Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, we've lopped most of most of the old ones down, and you know they they built a fair number of the homes. You know, certainly on the west coast, but probably coast to coast. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but we still have these huge forests of second growth Douglas fir uh, that just absolutely. I mean, I think at last count, um, and I'm sure this has grown since I I, I looked into this. Uh, last, but I think the last time I looked into it, the, the Douglas fir had maybe 400 known fungal associates. Um, so, for instance, where I live here in the Pacific Northwest, we're you know looking under Douglas firs for matsutake, um, for spurasis, for chanterelles. Of course, that's the most famous. Um, the Pacific Golden Chanterelle is mycorrhizal with young Douglas firs, especially the young ones, which means that the, the timber industry has sort of inadvertently created a boom in chanterelles because, you know, they've cut down most of the old trees and replaced them with these kind of tree farms that absolutely grow chanterelles like a crop. And so, you know, 
the commercial pickers know, you know, where exactly to go to just fill buckets. And so they can go into the woods and on a good day, you know, potentially pick a hundred pounds of chanterelles. And so that's what, yeah, I know exactly. So, so, so that's what gets people salivating about the Northwest. It's not our diversity of fungi, it's our quantities, you know, so we, we measure mushrooms in poundage as opposed to sort of numerical, you know, numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, like morel hunting, I've been in the Midwest hunting morels and you guys have an amazing morel culture. Everybody knows about morels every in season, you know, any decent cafe is probably serving, you know, a cream of morel soup or something like that. Um, and you have morel festivals. I went to the Boyne city, uh, morel hunting contest, you know, this is years ago, but I write about it in my book, the mushroom hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, everybody knows about morels in the Midwest. Um, and I've hunted them there. It's super fun. Again, I was a little bit baffled by the trees. You know, you have mm-hmm. really have to learn your ashes and your tulip trees yep. and some others. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I found some nice morels in the Midwest. Then you get out here. We especially have this phenomenon where after forest fires, we can have these huge flushes of morels the following spring. And of course, you know, this is an, even in Seattle where people think of it as very rainy, but in general, the West, it's an arid climate. Um, you know, we'll have wildfires even in the Olympics, you know, which there are parts of the Olympics that get 200 inches of rain a year. Um, yeah, I know, hard to fathom that. Um, but we still get wildfires, you know, and then of course you go east of the Cascade Mountains and you're in the rain shadow, it's much drier there and fire is just a very natural part of the landscape. And so these mushrooms, these mushrooms have evolved, uh, you know, to be in an arid landscape, to coexist with wildfire. And so we have several different species of morel that come up just exclusively after wildfire. And um, the pickers know about this. And so now, you know, morel hunters are fire watchers as well. They're fire hunters and uh, they keep track of the forest fires and, uh, you know, keep a little notebook. I, I you know, bookmark things on, on websites and whatnot, just sort of, especially the smaller fires that might, you know, be sort of under the radar a little bit that don't get, you know, a lot of notice. Um, and go back in the spring and there's the potential for just a huge flush. And I have seen pickers, you know, pick a hundred pounds of morels in a day, mm-hmm. which I know it boggles the mind, doesn't it? So there's an app called Onyx. And they have burn layers that have historic burn layers, and then it's recent burns. And it's anything that, and you could set the slider for however many acres. You could do it on Google Earth too, but it's a lot more work. But so in this app, they have that, and you can search that. And I know a lot of people that actually use that for elk hunting and other things as well, because it produces fresh, tender, young uh, browse um for the deer and then you know fresh grass and everything else and clears an opening for the canopy to produce better grass for the elk and so when they do that they also find a ton of morels and they do that in the spring for bear hunting too so yeah those those apps can be uh pretty useful uh it's funny all the sort of newfangled tools that we have at our disposal Mm -hmm. um and but i will i will add you know just a little (laughs) cautionary tale (laughs) 
friend, a friend of mine posted on Instagram the other day some shots of his mushroom hunting buddy who had been lost for several hours on the California coast and eventually got rescued by search and rescue and actually helicoptered out, I think. Oh, wow. um, but it sounds like he lost his phone while he was hunting. So presumably he probably had some GPS app going mm. and then he lost his phone and would had no idea where he was. And so Thanks. I always tell, I always tell my students, you know, I know that you're going to use a GPS app. That's fine. I use them too, but know how to use a map and compass and oh, bring, yeah. you know, bring them with you, you know, <laughs> along with maybe a few of the other hikers, 10 essentials, you know, have some food and water and some, mm -hmm. you know, rain, rain gear and warm weather or, or cold weather gear. And, uh, you know, you want to stay found in the woods. And uh, every year, you know, we get these stories of a guy who was mushroom hunting and got turned around and lost and, uh, you know, was no longer with us as a result. Um, wow. So, yeah, yeah. And that happens every year. So, wow. um, so you go ahead, use the apps. They're, they're really handy. But, but have, you know, plan B. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I use them on the computer a lot um, to to really look at areas, enhance them, blow them up so it's not on the phone for scouting purposes. Um, but it also comes in handy for mushrooms as well. So um, recently they've learned how to incorporate AI into this. So now you can look at large tracts of timber and it'll actually decipher what it is if you can't tell yourself. So then it'll tell you large oak stand, large this, large that. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It can tell you what species. Yes. Wow. Now that is super if, useful. If or at least dominant species within the, the whole. Sure. So, but 
now you can use that for mushroom hunting. And I actually found a new spot for maitake mushrooms <laughs> recently due to using that technology. And was that maitake growing on, on an oak tree? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I got to do my first maitake hunting on that trip to the Midwest, to oh, Minnesota. Yeah, that's yeah, my favorite. And, <laughs> oh, my God. Because, you know, we don't have them out here. Oh, uh, Clay doesn't they're have basic- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> don't get Luke started on maitakes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, that's when people ask me about what species, you know, I wish we had that we don't. That's always at the top of the list. Um, they're basically east of the Great Plains. Mm. Um, and so, so we don't get my talkie and, you know, I have to, I have to get on a plane and, and, uh, and head somewhere else to do that. But I was, you know, just north of Minneapolis, um, and, uh, and we found a beautiful my talkie. It wasn't one of those huge ones that you sometimes see, but it was still, you know, cantaloupe sized and certainly made a good meal for a whole bunch of us and we actually made some jerky out of it as well um which was really really good kind of a a soy cajun uh kind of we marinated it before you know before before drying it in the dehydrator so did you guys boil uh, it to cook it or how did you before you uh, yes yes we did yep yep yeah, that is that is that's definitely at the top of my list of mushrooms that that I wish we had. For one thing, they're just so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but they're meaty. They have good flavor. They're fun to cook with. And then, of course, I, I don't know how much you've looked into this, but you know they have a lot of medicinal value as well. Um, and I've kind of been getting into that recently. I made my first uh, reishi um, extract uh, this past year, and what so. Uh, so we have Ganoderma oregonsa out here, um, which apparently is very similar to to Ganoderma lucidum, which is the one that you get in Europe and China, um, and you know similar, all the same sort of compounds. Um, and I did a a, a double um, extraction, double filtration on it, both alcohol and and water based. Um, to get all the good stuff out of it. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, we think of, you know, those as, and a, a lot of related species, we call them conks, you know, um, and they often look like maybe dinner plates or frisbees off the side of a tree or rhino horn or something like that. And they're, they're usually hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the, you know, the, the reishi Ganoderma mushrooms, you want to get them when they're still soft. Um, and so we went to an old growth forest on the west slope of the Cascades where there was lots of old western hemlock. And they seemed to really like those old hemlocks. And uh, and I think this was August. And we found just beautiful specimens, bigger, bigger than my hand, with that kind of bright maroon, you know, shiny. They also call it the varnish conch. Um, they have that really shiny top to them and they were soft. So, I mean, not like really, really soft, but like soft enough that we could slice them with a knife. Um, Um, yeah, pretty soft. And yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that that people will eat them that way. Um, we ended up, yeah, we didn't, we didn't eat them. We used them. Um, but you know, there's another polypore that when I was in your neck of the woods, I did eat the red, have you ever eaten the resinous polypore? 
I haven't. I've actually never found one. Do you know what it looks like? I've seen them, seen them in books, it's, but that's it's pretty handsome, um, and it it tastes remarkable. I mean, you hear this a lot, but it tastes remarkably like bacon. <laughs> Seriously, I, I could get yeah. into that. <laughs> yes, yeah, we sautéed it up, and we just had it with like our you know breakfast omelet kind of thing. It oh. was uh, it was quite good. Yeah. Man, yeah. I found I found a bunch of resinous polypore at the last uh, foraging class that I taught of the year, and um, in fact, a you know a bunch of people asked me what does it taste like, and I said I've never eaten it because I um, it always looks so off putting to me. Well, the other thing we did with it was we cut it into cubes and dehydrated mm-hmm. those cubes, and they're kind of like. I don't know, little beef stock cubes that mm. you can sort of throw in a soup that you're making or something like that. And they will flavor it and they soften up um, and they they have, you know, good flavor. Um, so they're just they're fun. And that's another one that I don't see out where I live, um, which is why it's I, I mean, I'm just so sort of privileged to be able to do what I do, you know, to go different places and give talks and teach classes and, and, you know, get to hunt whatever their local, you know, mushrooms and, and plants are, which is, which is super fun for me. So are all Ganoderma species uh, actually medicinal or is there some that you should stay away from? I don't know of any that are toxic, uh, but some are more medicinal than others. And I think they're being pretty studied right now western science is definitely interested in them um and uh you know they're supposed to have all sorts of anti-cancer properties among other things um and uh and so yeah they're they're being actively studied right now and um i know that our local one ganoderma oregonsa seems to be very similar in kind of chemical makeup uh to to ganoderma lucidum which is which is the original that's the that is the reishi mushroom. Right. Is that like that? Yeah. That's not the antler one. Is it? Is that different than the? Antler one is, is based on how much CO2 is in the air. But I mean, that's the one that is the lucidum then? Or is that like a suge? Uh, suge is only around us. Okay. Yeah, yeah so. I've seen that one. I don't know much about that. Then there's another one. Um, is it called Sichuanese or something like that? Um, which apparently does not have as many of the desirable compounds as some of the other species yeah i found um, one a tree loaded with them the other day and i sent a picture to clay and i said i know it's some type of ganoderma i don't know what mm-hmm. it is and i was hunting in the tree right next to that tree that had them all over it and they were nice young tender little ones you know there's another the red belt polypore out here that people use to brew beer with um, so, you know, there's all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff that you can do with them. I am no expert on the Ganodermas. Okay. I'm really, I'm just in the process of learning about them right now. I made my first tincture. Um, you know, I'm reading up on them as, you know, we speak. Uh, so I'm no expert on Ganoderma, but, uh, but it's just, it's yet. And I tell people, you know, every year, a few new wild foods land on my plate. This is an ongoing process. You know, mm-hmm. I, it, you know, everybody wants to sort of throw around the word expert. I mean, the only reason I get to give these talks and teach these classes is because I initially wrote this book, Fat of the Land, which was really more like stories and 
personal essays about going out with my friends and going foraging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I guess that's more than 99% of the public is doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you find yourself being called an expert and asked to talk about it. But I always tell my audiences, you know, I'm learning too. And every year there are new species that land on my plate. I'm learning new techniques of how to process, how to cook, how to put up. Um, This is a lifelong pursuit. That's one of the great things about foraging. Um, And, you know, it's fun to kind of see how it was done in the past and to make connections with um, sort of Native American you know, foraging styles and see what's kind of still happening or what's fallen by the wayside. You know, certainly there are a lot of foods out there, you know, that I tell my classes, well, that's more of a survival food. You might not want to spend a lot of, you, know, you might not want to spend a lot of time, for instance, digging up, you know, the root ball of a sword fern, you know, which for one thing, just trying to get that thing out of the ground is going to be harder than a gooey duck. And, uh, it's like the size and shape of a pineapple. And then, you know, in terms of the processing, I mean, you gotta, you know, you gotta roast it, you gotta pound it, you make some sort of flour out of it, in turn, you make a mush with that, and it's not that tasty. <laughs> but it might help you survive a long, wet winter in the Pacific Northwest, you know, a few hundred years ago. Yeah. You know? uh, but I'm not, I'm not spending my time digging up uh, the rhizomes of uh, of sword ferns just to be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, I've done mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. I'm really looking for kind of the, the tastiest things that are out there and also things that are just really fun to find. Uh, for instance, that sporasis, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so back to something you said a second ago, you were talking about Native Americans um, here in the Great Lakes region um, when French people came the Anishinaabe were very, very mycophobic. Um, mm. Can you speak to how the yeah, so, people... you know the subject of sort of um, you know the Native American diet and and mushrooms is really interesting because we just don't know that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we can read between the lines and say it seems that maybe mushrooms were not a huge part yeah. of their diet. Um, I mean, I don't know of really anything in terms of, say, morels and porcini, mm-hmm. uh, at least out where I live. Um, but there is one mushroom that definitely figured into, especially um, the diets of Native Americans living on the Northern California coast, and that's matsutake. Mm. Uh, so I, you might know that up in Canada, they refer to matsutake, they call them pines or pine mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And that's because, you know, they often grow with pine trees, although they grow with fir trees a lot too. So they could be called mm-hmm. firs. But anyway, they call them pines up in Canada. Um, you know, down where I live here in, in the sort of, you know, greater sort of Seattle area, Washington, Oregon, you know, we mostly call them matsutake or matsis. Um, but you get down into Northern California and they often call them oaks. And that's because when you get down sort of south of um, probably Roseburg, Oregon, you start and, and, and get into places like Brookings, Oregon on the coast, you, you start to get tan oak. Um, that's kind of the northern limit of it. And Matsutake grows with the tan oaks down there. Hmm. And so apparently Native Americans called them oaks, uh, and they definitely ate them. Um, 
Yeah. So, but you know, in general, I would say our knowledge of of the sort of you know mycophagy of of Native Americans is is scant. Hmm. Well, I know that, for instance, I used to live in Mexico, and uh, Central Mexican culture is very heavy in mushroom eating, and um, then uh, I think also you got Oaxaca and mm. uh, Chiapas and all of them, and they engage in a lot of eating of mushrooms too. But um, yeah, like you said, it's pretty scant. I can't really find a lot of references, especially to things like chaga or, um, for instance, uh, morels even. Or the only one that I've been able to find a lot of information on here that was definitely used is puffballs. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, Central America is definitely a, a great place for mushrooming. I'm going to be going to Oaxaca in July, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, and, uh, and they have a long tradition of, of enjoying mushrooms as food and medicine and et cetera. Um, you know, in North America, we live in a more sort of mycophobic place. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, the European tradition here was mostly, especially, you know, sort of the anglicized portion of it was fairly mycophobic, but perhaps that even stretched back to the original inhabitants. I, I just don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but down in Central America, mushroom-loving place, um, you know, Eastern Europe, the Mediterranean, I think most of Asia, you know, China is just crazy about mushrooms. I mean, most parts of the world, I think, have long traditions with mushrooms. But here in this country, we're only just starting to kind of figure out what the rest of the most of the rest of the world has been hip to for a while now. So yeah. They well, are off, awfully fun to find and to cook with, don't you think? Oh yeah. I mean absolutely. My when when I take my kids out, it's I have three kids, they all hate mushrooms. <laughs> but but yeah, that's pretty you, that's pretty standard. <laughs> um, but they will totally go out and try to find them. I mean, that, that's like the thing they love to do. They want to fill the basket up, then they don't want anything to do with eating them. Scavenger That's hunt. funny. <laughs> you know, my kids used to call our mushroom hunting expeditions, they called them baton death marches. <laughs> oh, that's rough. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's funny because they both sort of lost the thread a little bit of the wild mushroom. But, you know, my daughter is 18 and my son is in his early 20s and they're just at that age, you know, mm -hmm. where they'll come back to it. I'm, my wife says that at least. Yeah. <laughs> they'll come back. They'll come back to it. Um, but when they were little, um, they did enjoy the hunt. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I do remember a few family conflicts where maybe one kid found more than the other, you know, and uh, <laughs> it led to you know, fisticuffs, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, they're close to the ground and they have sharp eyes. So they're, yeah. they're well suited to it. I got a question for you in regards to morels. I have a theory that there are some people who are just have what I call morel eyes. Mm. And, then there, and then there's others like me who, who I, I just don't. So um, I've gone out in what are what people would classify as like great woods for for morels and i just can't find them <laughs> and, and um and then like somebody else who's right next to me just spotting them left and right you know so um 
do you think that there is that? And um, how do I fix that? <laughs> well, I don't know if I can help you, Clay. But, but, <laughs> but here, here are some ideas. Because some of it, you know, some of it could be genetic. Like, it's, it's pattern recognition mm -hmm. to a certain degree, right? And so I don't know how one sort of hones that skill. But I can tell you that that tree connection that we were talking about earlier is really important. When I went to Boyne City and participated in what they call the world's greatest mushroom hunting contest or something, or morel hunting contest, something like that, at the uh, annual festival that they have there in May, um, I met a guy who had been uh, crowned the sort of king of morels the first three years that they had the contest and then he retired you know and he felt like it was his duty to step aside and let somebody else win you know mm -hmm. his name is tony and and he is a great mushroom picker and uh we were in his uh he makes he makes furniture for a living and we were in his shop uh, where he actually at the time he had this incredible four poster bed that he had made from from the roots of various trees and somehow nailed it all together and it still was level and everything but i mean it was just an amazing bed that he had made with all these sort of twisting you know vines and branches over the top and everything but anyway uh i digress uh we're in his shop and he says look out the window and i look out the window and he points to a, a hill that's maybe i don't know a mile away and he says, I can pick out the mature ash trees from here on that <laughs> hill. And he said, you see that lighter green color? And I said, yeah, I, I see that. He's like, I'm making a beeline for that, you know? And it just, it made me realize just how important, not only knowing the tree species, but within that category, you also have to know the candidates. He was looking for the most mature, you know, the biggest, I think they were, I think they were green ashes. Does that make sense for the green. for sort of sort of northern Michigan green ash or was it blue ash? I can't remember. Uh, well, uh, you you would be talking about my neck of the woods. Boyne City is only like an hour away from me, and uh, yeah, is that black. So that's black uh, ash. Um, no, that would be a white ash because we have black ash. Oh, and was white it ash. white ash? Okay, yeah. okay. So he was pointing out the ash trees, but within that sort of category he's looking for the oldest in fact you know how morels are sort of they are mushrooms of kind of i don't know they're almost like mushrooms of death <laughs> which sounds important <laughs> but but they are they you're gonna find them in areas of disturbance and decay you know they they like areas that we have disturbed Okay, so if we build trails or roads or, you know, if they're fires, that sort of thing, they like that. But they also like trees that are old and going to pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, those trees that are sort of dropping their limbs, that are starting to kind of fall down. They might still be alive, but uh, they don't have long, you know. Mm -hmm. Those are the, you know, th those are often the trees that they will pop up under. So he was looking really for the most mature, kind of long in the tooth ash trees. Um, so when you start to make those connections, you know, and kind of learn to see that habitat from afar, like he would just make a beeline to mm. it. You know, he would move right past all the other trees because they're not candidates. He'd go right for that tree. And then you just spend your whole day doing that. 
you know, I know mushroom hunters who hardly, you know, they'll park their car and they'll spend a whole day, you know, practically within yards of the car. Like they just make no progress. They're just they're They're looking down at their feet, essentially, and just mm-hmm. studying the ground, you know. But in fact, if you want to be successful mushroom hunting, you kind of have to be efficient. You have to move. You have to you have to move through the woods. You have to have targets that you're looking for. And when you don't have those targets, you just keep going. So he would breeze past all the young trees and the non-ash trees and the ones that don't fit the profile. And he would go right to those big, old, you know, mature, long-in-the-tooth ashes because he knew that was his best chance. And then if there was nothing there, he'd continue to the next one, you Mm. know. Um, So – and I learned this from, you know, when I was writing my book, The Mushroom Hunters, all the commercial pickers that I went out with, I learned the same thing from them. Like they're moving through the forest at a pretty good clip. They're moving yeah. much faster than your than your typical recreational mushroom hunter, you know. And then once they start to find mushrooms, they settle down and pick. But they're looking for those honey holes. They're looking for those spots where there are lots of mushrooms to pick, yeah. not the sort of onesies and twosies as they refer to them. I've got a buddy um, that picks probably three to 400 pounds of maitakis every year and probably a hundred pounds of morels every year. And he, I went with him once and that was enough for me because he goes through the woods so fast and he'll Mm. just move on. And it's the same thing. He's looking up the whole time. He's looking for dead branches in the trees. And so he's looking for uh, ashes, elms and tulip poplars and and those are the three species that he looks for for the the morels. And he's just cruising through the woods, blows by so many other things. I'm like, hey, look, look over here. There's oysters. Hey, look over here. There's this. And it, I, he doesn't care. That's not his mission. And he goes through right. so fast. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's... that's enough for me. I want to be able to just roam. <laughs> I hear you. Um it's like with porcini mushrooms. I tell people, we, so we have a variety of porcini that comes up in the mountains, uh, in the Cascades, you know, usually kind of late summer after we get some rains. And um, I tell people, if you want to go p- pick mountain porcini, just figure you're doing a 12-mile hike. You know, <laughs> you need to get into the woods and take a trail because that's the, the fastest, most efficient way to get deep into the woods. You have to get to elevation. And um, you got to spend a lot of time kind of looking at the proper habitat. And that means, you know, bypassing the wrong habitat and heading for the good habitat. And if you don't find anything there, then moving on to the next. And, you know, when you find a good spot, well, it's wonderful. You start finding beautiful porcini buttons all over the place. I mean, it's just, you know, no happier moment. But uh, but you gotta put miles on your boots. That's just that's sort of part of the deal, uh, and you just have to be ready to do that. Plus, I mean, mushroom hunting keeps you fit. You know, you get out there, you're charging around the woods. Um, you know, it's. I mean, I love just being outside, so that's a huge part of it for me. Um, but you know, you gotta. It'll keep you in shape too. Absolutely. So tell us about uh, your your book, The Mushroom Hunters. It is now out in paperback. That's right. I'm I'm really excited. Um, it's been a long time coming. Um, it's actually the 10th anniversary 
Um, and uh, it's finally out in paper, which is great. Um, it's a book that my wife didn't want me to write. <laughs> she, she had heard, you know, the rumors of territorial pickers, of gunshots in the woods, you know, of skirmishes, that sort of thing. Uh, and so she just vetoed the idea right off the bat. But I, I was smitten. I, I had to write this book. Um, I was just obsessed with the sort of people who could go into the woods and pick 100 pounds of morels. It just seemed, as a recreational mushroom hunter at that point, never having gone out with the commercial guys, it just seemed impossible. Um, I think of mushroom hunting as kind of like nature's Rubik's cube. You know, you have to do all these different combinations to solve the puzzle. And it's, you know, it's soil type and tree canopy and microclimate and weather and all these different factors, you know, slope aspect that they all go into finding the mother load. And uh, I realized that these guys just, they, they were doing it on a level that, I just didn't understand, and I had to get out there with them. But the thing was, the, the really the most difficult thing in the early stages of writing the book was simply finding, you know, my characters, because most people didn't want to talk to me. You know, it's a famously clandestine pursuit, um, and uh, mushroom hunters can be somewhat secretive uh, about their patches and really, I would discover just sort of in general. <laughs> uh, and um, I can remember there was a buyer uh, that I called because I, I, I wanted to write not just about the pickers, but the whole pipeline. You know, I wanted mm -hmm. to write about the pickers, the buyers and the chefs, right? The end users. Uh, and so I called up a buyer whose number somehow I had managed to wrangle out of somebody. And he answers the phone. And the first thing he says to me is, who are you and how did you get my number? <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, I didn't want to, you know, betray my, my source. So I just said, well, I, a friend of mine gave me your number and said that you might be open to uh, just sort of showing me the ropes. Like, I don't want to be in the way. I just want to kind of visit your buy station and watch the grading process and the pickers coming in and how you do business. I just, I'll just stand in a corner and just kind of watch. Okay. Is that okay? And he, he paused and he said, you know, it's like with the cops, we're not interested. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, what a, what a wild thing to say, you know? Um, but Eventually, I would run into both buyers and pickers who were willing to share with me kind of what they did. There was one picker in particular, a guy named Doug Carnell, who I met, and he's been picking mushrooms commercially for like 40 years. He's also captained a crab boat. He's dug razor clams commercially. He's scavenged metal. He's been a, a, a logger. You know, he's done all these sort of different things, but mushroom hunting has been sort of the backbone of what he's done for the last 40 years. And I think he actually um, was willing to talk to me because he was proud of his knowledge and I um, wanted to share it with somebody, you know, who was planning to write about it. You know, he, he, he was just very upfront with me. Um, the first time he took me picking, I met him in Hoquiam 
which is a sort of down at the heels timber town on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, Western Washington. And uh, we met at the 7-Eleven where he was getting basically, you know, his one shot of nourishment for the day, which was like a huge cup of like a 24 ounce cup of coffee. You know? <laughs> and uh, he probably had some cold hot dogs in the you know back of his, his car. We jumped into his car. It was a, an old um, sort of broken down Buick Skylark. He called it the blue pig. And uh, he said, okay, come with me. And so we drove up, you know, 101 on the Olympic Peninsula. And then we got off on a country road. And then that turned into sort of a logging road and we were on a dirt road. And the dirt road narrowed into what was basically a goat path. And then we crested, we crested a rise and I looked down and there was a huge puddle, like, you know, bigger you know than a swimming pool below and he said hold your breath and he he just jammed the accelerator and we went crashing through this puddle made it to the other side and uh he parked a car and we jumped out and he got his bucket and a knife that was like nine inches long you know and uh, <laughs> that he bought at the dollar store and he said follow me and you know we were at a place in timber country this was not where recreational people go. There were no trails, you know, there were no views. This was all cut over forest, all second growth, what the pickers call reprod. Uh, and, you know, the moment you walk into woods like that in the Northwest, this was late October, early November. It was kind of similar to, to now. The moment you step into woods like that, you're soaking wet. It's like walking through a car wash, you know? <laughs> And so he parted the evergreen huckleberry and stepped into the woods and I followed him through the Salal and this, the old logging slash. And, and, um, you know, we kind of went charging up the hill and eventually we ended up on this sort of ridge and we looked down on the other side and down in this valley, it was just the creamy caps of hedgehog mushrooms for as far as I could see you know, just hedgehogs everywhere. And that first day, I don't know, we picked 40 or 50 pounds of hedgehogs. <laughs> no. I think he was getting about $7 a pound for those hedgehogs that day. And um, yeah, he, I knew right away, this is my guy. You know, so I spent the next three years just traveling around the greater Pacific Northwest with him, you know, from, you know, basically, I mean, the, the mushroom trail, as they call it, extends from basically southeast alaska across the yukon down through western montana and idaho out to the coast of say northern california like at mendocino and then up through oregon and washington if you draw a circle around that area you can basically pick mushrooms somewhere inside that circle every day of the year mm. wow and wow yeah <laughs> so in winter they're all down in southwestern oregon and northern uh, California picking the winter species. Uh, that's Which what they are? do. Well, the winter species are primarily black trumpets, um, yellowfoot, which is a relative of the chanterelle, and um, belly button hedgehogs. Hmm. Yeah. Two years ago, I was uh, hauling buckets of wild rice to plant in this uh, beaver pond. And um, I stumbled upon more hedgehogs than I knew what to do with. And, and I was like, what? And I've walked past this place so many times. I get the impression that you guys have um, mushrooms that are much more reliable. And like, 
we, where I live, it's very dry in the summer times. So yeah. like if we happen to have like a rainy spell in the summer, all of a sudden you can find mushrooms in spots that you've walked by for years and you never saw a mushroom. Well, this one day I filled a five gallon bucket with hedgehogs and it was totally an accident. <laughs> so um, that was pretty cool. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I mean, what that means is that mycelium has been there all that time underground just waiting for its moment to fruit yeah. and that mycelium just stretches you know i mean it's just everywhere it's tied in with the roots of the trees and um you know as they refer to it as earth's internet you know <laughs> um it's it's just amazing to think about uh but um yeah you know um i would say that you know where i live we definitely have large quantities of mushrooms, but the thing that I have noticed in 30 years of picking mushrooms is that it's changing. And this is largely due to climate change. And what's happening is what used to be, as you put it, reliable, mm -hmm. the, it's now getting more erratic. So yeah. yeah, the fruitings, it's not so much that the seasons are shifting, although there is some shifting in the seasons going on, but more that I'm seeing is that it's becoming more erratic. And so we're having these sort of boom and bust cycles, um, you know, drought and flood. Last year, we had the worst fall mushroom hunting season in the Northwest that I've experienced in my 30 years of picking out here. Uh, this year has been, the fall has been okay. It's been decent. Um, but, you know, we didn't get rain until I think maybe the third week in October, which is totally unusual for this area. Um, and I always tell people that you don't necessarily need the rain for mushrooms. A lot of mushroom hunters think, oh, it's not worth going until it rains. That's not necessarily true. I mean, there are other factors, you know, there's the sort of photo period, there's soil temperature. There are other factors that play into the, the fruitings. Um, but certainly having a little bit of moisture is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we just didn't get that last year. And so it was, it was terrible. Um, you know, we're seeing this sort of erratic nature of things just more and more. We're having, you know, good years followed by really bad years instead of a kind of a steady, reliable. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I really do think that's one of the effects of climate change. Uh, at this point that I can put my finger on something that I have noticed, you know, in the three decades that I've been doing it. So in my lifetime, I've sort of seen this, this change. Um, and uh, we'll just have to see, um, you know, I've been spending more time maybe hunting in old growth forests because those older forests, you know, they, those big old trees, they've been around a long time. They know mm -hmm. how to conserve resources. Right. Yeah. So, you know, those are places to look when everything else is super dry and there's nothing going on. You look in those old growth forests forest and you might find something. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely more erratic now out in the mushroom mm -hmm. patches. Very interesting. So, um, Luke, did you have any final questions? Nope. I was just going to uh, say where could everybody find him if they want to reach out to him, talk to him and, uh, and where can they find his books? Uh, sure. Happy to fill you in on that. It's, it's pretty much Langdon cook 
across the board. Um, so my Instagram and Facebook is Langdon Cook. Um, my website, www.langdoncook. Um, trying to think Twitter, same thing. Um, so, you know, it's just my name, no dashes or dots or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, with my, it's, I like, uh, I like Instagram because I just like the beauty of just posting a single photo and maybe <laughs> saying a, a few things about it, you know, and I try and help people out in season, you know, with what's going on, things to look for, maybe a few little tips or hints about where to look. Um, but, you know, I'm not out there writing really long involved posts or anything. I just every now and then something strikes my fancy visually. I'll take a picture and, and put it up on Instagram. Um, so that's that's maybe maybe the best way to to uh, to find stuff for me. As far as my books go, you know, hopefully they're in your local bookstore. But if they're not, well, tell them to pick them up, uh, especially <laughs> the you know new new paperback of, of the Mushroom Hunters, uh, which I think uh, they did a great job with. Looks great. Um, really happy with how it came out. I updated all the taxonomy uh, for the new edition. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, taxonomy in the world of mushrooms is just a moving target and mm -hmm. pretty much everything was out of date by the time, you know, the hardcover went to press. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, you know, I'm sure that all these names will change again, uh, because it just seems like, you know, the mycologists love to keep changing names. Uh, but no, it's as we learn more about DNA, you know, a lot is changing. Um, so the taxonomy has been updated as best as possible for the new edition. And, um, you know, uh, obviously, you know, if it's not at your local bookstore, you can find it online, um, at the usual spots. Yeah. Awesome. Can I ask you a question just as a writer? Sure. So I really enjoy paperbacks, um, much more than hardcover. Whenever, whenever I, I, I've got a, like a, a, I read a lot of books and if I, if I have the option, I'm going to pick the paperback all day long over the hardcover. Um, is that, does that like hurt your feelings as an author? You know, is that. Hey, I'm with you on that because paperbacks can go in your backpack, you know, oh, yeah. when you're out, yeah. when you're out in the wilderness and yeah. you know, you need a good book for those rainy days in the tent, you know? So I, I totally get that. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think they each have their place. You know, I'm glad that the book is now in paperback because I think it'll find um, maybe a, a new audience that way. I do love a beautiful hardcover book. And I mm -hmm. think that the, I, I love I think they did a great job with the cover of my hardcover edition. Um, I just love the way it looks. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, very happy with that. But I think the new paperback looks really great, too. And I hope that, you know, it's been 10 years since the hardcover came out. and if anything, I almost jumped the gun with the mushroom hunters because, you know, mushrooms in the la most, you know, just the last few years have really, and I think especially, you know, through the pandemic, I think there was an acceleration of interest in fungi in general. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, you know, I almost sort of think that the hardcover might have come out a little too soon for that, for that mm -hmm. broader you know, interest, but there's, there's just all sorts of new mushroom hunters out there. I think mycological societies are enjoying a lot of uh, new members uh, and just there's a general interest. Of course, with the writing that I do, 
I'm writing for a much larger audience than just mushroom hunters. I mean, it's really a general nonfiction audience. I try and tell a good story. It's all true. I mean, it's, you know, I followed these guys through the woods with a tape recorder and a notebook and, you know, I got it all down. And, uh, I felt like this was a sort of a shadowy subculture that most people didn't even know exists, you know? <laughs> and so if you're interested in food, if you're interested in the outdoors, if you're interested in nature, you know, this just should be a book that I would think would resonate with a lot of different readers out there. And you don't necessarily have to be a hardcore mushroom hunter, you know, or a hardcore foodie, you know, because I try and tell a good story. Uh, and I think that these characters, I mean, I'm still in touch with a lot of people from the book. Uh, and um, I think they're great characters. Uh, they're good talkers. And, um, you know, I go to some pretty cool places hanging out with them on the mushroom trail. Awesome. Yeah, well, I read your I read your book years ago. I own your book. Um, I love it. I highly recommend it to everybody who has um, the opportunity to read it and get yourself a paperback and take it with you. And um, maybe you need to write a second book and then come back on the show and tell us about it or a second mushroom. So, Clay, I think the same reason, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I hated school. So a hardcover mm. book reminds me of textbooks. And I hated <laughs> textbooks because I wanted to learn. The thing was, is it was forced. Everything was confined. This is what you're going to learn. It's structured. This is what you get. And for me, I want to go on different paths. I always wanted to follow my own will and my own way on everything and by doing that, I, that's, I think that's why, and maybe that's not why you'd like it, but this, that's the reason why I like paperbacks more than a hard cover or a hard copy too. Yeah. I love that response. I think that's great, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, let's not forget, there's some people who want the ebook. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is the modern convenience, you know? So, hey, I, am, I, I don't care how my readers want it you know just read it lots of different there's <laughs> lots of different formats and actually i will say this as well the guy who does the reading for the audiobook and it's not me unfortunately they had a you know a, a, a professional voice guy do it but he actually won an award uh i think it's called an earphone award for his rendition of my book he does a wonderful job reading it um, That's awesome. so if you're into audiobooks <laughs> I get emails from people all the time. They're like, oh, we're just driving across the Yukon right now looking for morels and listening to your book right now. That's <laughs> you know? awesome. Like, yeah, I'd love to hear that. So anyway, cool. um, lots of formats out there. And, you know, um, I, I am I'm happy if, if you find one that suits you. So, <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. Yep. Thank you for coming on. It's been amazing talking to you. And uh, like everybody said, you know, read read the book. It sounds like uh, an amazing book. Well, it's been super fun talking to some fellow foragers, and uh, I wish you all full buckets out there. <laughs> and uh, you know, hope we get to chat again sometime. Me too. Yep. And maybe even get into the woods together sometime. That would be fun. Absolutely, anytime. Uh, you know, I, I need those those friends who have my talkie spots. <laughs> I've got my talkie spots. In fact, I'm going to hit some in the morning. Not not for that purpose, but if I come home empty-handed, I know I'm not going to come home empty-handed with this uh, warm weather we're having. So that's yeah. right. Well, excellent. I uh, I will definitely you know remember that. <laughs> <and> be... <laughs> oh yeah. Well, thank All you right. so much. Yep. 
once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawks cave oh that's awesome experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment